Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and I'm glad to have you with us. As our society, our economy, and our national defense become more and more dependent on technology, it becomes more and more critical to have a qualified workforce. The U.S. does not. Estimates of the number of workers needed in cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and quantum are sky high and growing. So what are we doing about it? And what more do we need to do? With us here to discuss is Dr. Jose Marie Griffiths. Dr. Griffiths has spent her career in research, teaching, and public service, serving on the National Science Board, the U.S. President's Information Technology Advisory Committee, and also as a member of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Since 2015, Dr. Griffiths has been president of Dakota State University in Madison, South Dakota, which was referred to recently in an article as the cyber powerhouse on the plains. Dr. Griffiths, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Jean. Glad to be there on, on, a, on a very important topic. As I mentioned, I have heard varying but very large estimates of how many workers we need in the technology workforce. What numbers do you use? Well, if we start with the cybersecurity arena, um, that probably has the hardest number um, available. They estimate between 650,000 and 700,000 cybersecurity jobs available today. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics recently revised this estimate for the future, indicating they thought that those numbers would grow by 35% over the next five to seven years. So that's just cybersecurity. We've always said that in the artificial intelligence arena, the numbers are going to be much higher just because artificial intelligence uh, covers so many different areas and applications. And then in the quantum area that you mentioned in your introduction, um, there is a, a declared shortage of talent in the quantum area because um, I think because physics programs have been eliminated and downgraded over the last several decades. How alarming do you find these numbers? Does it cripple our technology sector? It, it is very, very scary, particularly as we talk about the, um, the global tech competition. Um, the United States is behind, and if we can't get more people into the workforce, we're going to fall further and further behind. The National Security Commission, when we started our work, uh, we divided up into different areas, and I was working, uh, one of the groups was the workforce group, and every other group eventually came back to issues of workforce. We can't make progress in any area unless we have a well-qualified, educated workforce. Did the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence make some specific action step recommendations in its report, and have they been implemented? Uh, good question. We actually made a large number of recommendations, and many of them were implemented, particularly through the uh, National, National Defense Authorization Act. But there were things that weren't uh, implemented that also could help. And what are those? Uh, well, one of them that was actually quite a quite an attractive um, recommendation, a lot of people really liked it, was the establishment of a U.S. Digital Service Academy, similar to para in parallel to the military service academies, although this wouldn't have a sort of military component. But the idea was, was to bring together um, cohorts of young people who would all study in the STEM areas and then go into the um, defense or the civilian um, federal workforce as a cohort of potential leaders moving forward. 
that was very attractive. Um, there was a lot of discussion. Should it be a single academy in a single location, or should it be distributed? Should monies be distributed across a range of universities? Um, the commission felt strongly that it should be a single place-based um, education because we already have the distributed environment. And if you think about various um, scholarship for service programs, like the CyberCore Scholarship for Service, and we recommend that, that be expanded to cover AI, um, you've already got that environment. But you don't create this cohort of leaders who've had the same education, have the same understanding of what the mission is that they're going to work on. And um, so it just has floundered. It's come back in various forms in Congress, but it's not really gained enough traction to move fully forward. The White House released a national cyber workforce and education strategy. Have you taken a look at that? And what do you think of that approach? Yes, I have taken a look at that. Um, it's interesting in the sense that it's um, it's very broad, but it recommends um, basically a, an ecosystem approach, all hands, all different entities working together. So working um, from K through 12, all the way through higher education, but engaging not just the educational sector, but the corporate sector and the government sector working together to make this happen. I don't see how we could get to the level of workforce we need unless we do that. But the other part of the workforce issue is that takes time. And, you know, we have a somewhat of an urgency right now. And it's hard to see how we could get there quickly. But I also believe we can't do it with a domestic work workforce alone. We have to look at um, legal immigration policies, how to keep um, talent here when it comes here for its education. And so this sort of multi-pronged, multi-dimensional approach is the only way that we're ever really going to get to the workforce that we need. So talk to me about immigration policy for just a moment. Is it working against us at the moment? Unfortunately, immigration is, uh, is considered rather negatively and, and over-politically in a way by a lot of people. I mean, people think immigration, and that means the southern border. Uh, legal immigration seems to have receded into the distance in, in people's minds. So there were a number of recommendations that we made uh, one was to um, broaden the scope of extraordinary talent uh, visas, uh, making the O-1 visa much more accessible. We know that uh, the, the number of green cards that could be issued are never fully issued because people don't want to go over the caps, and so they never quite fully issue all of them. So we made a recommendation, could we recapture those lost uh, green card uh, slots, if you like, and, and move those forward? Um, we also thought perhaps issuing green cards to students graduating with STEM PhDs from uh, US accredited universities would be a good idea with it, with some uh, uh, security screening, of course, but that would be a very quick way to increase the number of people in the workforce, especially if you look at the um, numbers of young people going into the uh, four-year degree programs in STEM, they're growing very, very rapidly in terms of international students, not as much in terms of domestic students. And there's an international competition to woo those people and win those people, correct? Absolutely. And it's what's been the basis for the United States leadership role in technology and science. Um, I'm an immigrant myself and came in on one of those uh, special visas um, a number of years ago. Well, a few decades ago, actually. Um, but you will look if you look at the SciTech workforce now in the United States, many of us 
are immigrants. We either came with our credentials or we got our credentials in the United States. And we're not capitalizing on that. We're essentially letting these people go elsewhere. Absolutely. Elsewhere. I want to loop back. You mentioned when you were talking about the White House proposal, um, the K through 12 educational system. How do we ramp up the quantity and quality of tech education in those grades? I mean, that's a really good question and something I've been engaged in for decades. It's very hard. Um, it's hard because the decisions on K-12 education are largely made by the states, and states distinguish themselves in different ways. Some states move at a certain pace and others don't. Um, so it's very, very variable across the United States. Efforts to move things from the national level have been slow. But one of the recommendations we made, and it, it was quite a far-reaching recommendation out of the commission, was perhaps it's time for a new National Defense Education Act. The uh, 1958, the first National Education um, Defense Education Act came along and was the reason why um, uh, it increased vastly the number of Americans with degrees, expanded the number of math and science teachers in the K-12 and the university systems, and focused on... Uh, fields relating to national defense, particularly mathematics. Now, we made great moves and great strides at that point. Unfortunately, I'm concerned that many uh, are weakening the role of STEM in the K-12 environment. We have fewer and fewer teachers of STEM. Um, then when the schools don't have sufficient numbers of teachers, they downgrade the qualifications, the graduation qualifications for students, universities, and uh, Community colleges are trying to catch students up. Uh, therefore, we do remedial education. And one of us said, why are we doing remedial education? Because it's needed and it's not covered in schools. So I think we really do need to look at across the whole spectrum of education and strengthen it at all levels. But the intriguing thing about the White House uh, recent uh, strategy was that it looked at it talked about cyber, cyber in the general sense, not just cybersecurity, but cyber including artificial intelligence, computer science, etc., for all. And I think that we need to have an all-out effort if we're to catch up. You know, it takes people what any number of years to get through the K through 12 system at universities. They want more graduates, and that takes four years at least. Um, how are we ever going to get there when we're seeing other countries? telling students they have to study STEM and all schools cover STEM to a certain degree. Not quite the way we do it in the Western world, but in their own specific targeting people for, for certain kinds of careers. It's, it's very hard to see how we really are going to catch up. It's a little ironic because these kids K through 12 are using technology every day. They're using phones, they're using computers, now they're using AI they understand the utility of these technologies, but they don't really have the education to create them. There, to some extent, Jean, there are, we do have sort of bright young people who, um, who probably um, could go straight into the workforce and do very well um, immediately because they're bright and young and, and that's what they've been playing with all their lives. But um, if you really want people to be able to have a, a solid understanding and take the direction, as you say, developing uh, IT a lot more seriously, they're going to have to have some formal education in the field, if only to keep up with what's new, what's happening. So at Dakota State University, uh, you've been creating the tech workforce. 
Tell us a little bit about what you've undertaken there. We've been uh, working at this for some time. So the university is at what we call special focus STEM university. Special focus is in all, all the areas of computing, networking, information technology, data science, etc. Uh, not just in and of themselves, but also how those technologies are applied in other fields. So everyone at the Dakota State learns how the technology works um, and what's emerging uh, as technologies. Um, so when I arrived, I found um, an institution that had a very solid foundation of computer science across its curriculum, had built some excellent programs in multiple disciplines of cybersecurity. So that's what we were particularly known for. Um, we had rational recognition, actually, in the areas of cybersecurity with uh, the uh, Center of Academic Excellence designations from the NSA and Department of Homeland Security. What I found missing was they weren't involved in AI very much, and I felt I knew that was coming. So we, we decided we would really make a move in uh, artificial intelligence and start hiring faculty and um, creating uh, undergraduate programs. We have two in artificial intelligence, and now we have a master's degree in process uh, in artificial intelligence. But the other thing we found missing a little bit was a very strong research function. We're a small university um, in the middle of the country, and um, we felt that uh, we actually could uh, develop a strong applied research function to help um, external entities, be it state government, federal government, corporations uh, across the, the range of applications in the areas of research. So we now are just touching on about 3,500 students, which is relatively small, but half of those students are engaged in our Beacon College of Computer and Cyber Sciences. These are the students that are going to develop the technologies and protect the technologies. The other half are in business, um, data science, uh, health informatics, education, arts and sciences, and so on. Um, and so uh, we, one of the things we realized was that our sort of highly technical students or graduates were moving to the coasts. So while we were, had a, a super education that was nationally recognized, the state was losing people to other parts of the country. And so what we've done is we've worked to um, now an effort to not only graduate students, to do work in, in the cyber arena, but actually we're starting to create the jobs that will keep those young people here in the state for longer periods of time. So that took an effort. We have a massive public-private um, collaboration between uh, some uh, generous philanthropists, the state, the state legislature, the governor, the city of Sioux Falls, um, the, uh, the local health, um, largest health uh, organization in the state to come together to allow us to do two things. First of all, we are uh, expanding our research labs. So we've got a research lab now that would house about 125 people and we're building up there. But the demand for us research, applied research services is growing. So we're building a new lab, um, business park, if you like, in Sioux Falls that will eventually house more than 1,200 research engineers in the cyber arena. And at the same time, we've been given um, $30 million by the state legislature and the governor to increase our capacity here on campus to double the number of graduates in certain uh, cyber-related disciplines. So there's disciplines of cyber operations or offensive cybersecurity 
AI and um, computer science. And to add 200 more graduates, in effect, means you have to add about 800 more students. And we're on the move, on the march, with uh, increasing those numbers. A couple of things I want to pick up on there. One, partnership. It seems essential. Academic institutions cannot do this on their own, can they? No, they can't. Absolutely not. They need to partner with both uh, corporate sector, uh, uh, the government, uh, and uh, business. Well, business and uh, and um, and are all those sectors stepping up to the job? In your well, opinion, we, we they are been, in your instance, but in, in other instances, there are some other uh, examples of this. Um, that other states have made major moves. I think in Florida, they've got a lot going on. Texas started to make moves. Georgia has um, put together its its uh, cybersecurity initiative. I think Colorado is just doing some things. Um, it's really happening at that level, um, mainly because of the, the the job demand and the economic development opportunities that exist for the states. What steps would you suggest other academic institutions be taking? Um, I think that they should look very, very closely at their STEM programs. Um, to what extent are their STEM programs strong and viable? and able to grow. I think that academic institutions uh, don't, as you say, don't have to go it alone, but they could collaborate with other academic institutions. We have a lot of interactions with universities, with community colleges, with the technical colleges in our state to create articulation agreements. Um, we are able to uh, sometimes share faculty. That's that's a big issue, by the way. We don't have sufficient faculty to to uh, educate all of the students we'd like to educate. So how do we get more faculty when we're in competition for people with PhDs now going straight into the corporate sector? So there's competition all around, not just internationally, but within sectors as well. I have been hearing about the need for more minorities and women in STEM for more than a decade. Is any progress being made? If we're going to grow a workforce, it seems to me we have to look in new populations, we do, Jean, absolutely, and this is um. So there's a there's a sad fact around this. Um, major major moves over the last several decades to actually build up uh, the number of women, particularly uh, focused attention on women, but also minorities. Getting women up to a level, I think that was in the low twenty percent, um, and unfortunately, we've slid right back in many of those disciplines, especially in the computer sciences. Um, biology is doing quite well, chemistry is doing quite well, but in the computer-related areas, we're not doing so well. That's very sad. But one of the things about the um, the National Defense Education Act was the thought that if we implemented this across the board, uh, we would actually be able to attract many, many more um, women, young girls, as well as um, uh, first-generation uh, Americans, as well as uh, expanding the number of minorities generally coming into the field, starting very, very early in their education and preparing them for it. The talent is there. The talent exists. How do we harness the talent and capture it so that people see there are opportunities for them and that there are careers that they can have um, and that careers don't have to be all with big companies? Um, I think the federal government is coming to that recognition. A fair amount of the conversations I've had with various um, federal agencies as universities need to work with the federal sector much, much more uh, to understand the 
the, the mission orientation and the opportunities for people in the federal government so that uh, we can we can check with some of our students in that direction. I think the number of um, uh, SciTech positions available in the government alone uh, exceeds well over 35,000 today. And so, but we don't usually send our young people that way. They tend to go out into the corporate sector. Your thoughts, by the way, on why you're seeing backsliding on the number of women in the computer sciences? Well, for a while, I have to say it was probably the culture and the tech organizations that while there are a lot of young people, young women were graduating and going out into that sector, the culture was a little bit um, uncomfortable. Um, I think it's changed. I think corporations have really been trying. I mean, certainly I know that every major corporation comes here to recruit, and we've made efforts to increase the number of uh, young women and girls coming through. We do a lot of summer camps for girls. We've just started a statewide cyber academy that we hope will attract not only young girls, but also minorities coming in. Our Sioux Falls School District, I think, has 51 languages spoken in it right now, and our academy program will start to attract more young people with very diverse backgrounds into cyber-related fields. We have talked a lot on this podcast about the impact AI is going to have on jobs. What's your assessment? Well, uh, you know, the big scare is jobs are going away. And we've said that with every new technology that jobs are going to go away. Some jobs will go away. We've seen the robots now that, that are starting to take over for wait, wait staff in restaurants and so on. Um, I think about the future with uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, are we going to need as many drivers? Shortage of drivers these days, but how long are drivers going to have have work to do? Um, but always new new opportunities have come around and new career fields have evolved. There's a certain scare right now, I think, with uh, some of the generative AI um, over people in the creative fields, um, very much concerned that they're going to be outnumbered <laughs> or overshadowed or taken over by by the creative, particularly when we see the strikes going on, the uh, the strike in Hollywood, for example. Um, and I think to some extent that's, that's somewhat legitimate, but I also believe that um, artificial intelligence, artificial creativity and human creativity are not identical and not the same, and there will be a need for both. That's my personal view. I'm sure you talk to young people all the time about their futures. When you're giving academic advice to students, what field do you steer them towards? Oh, we still we steer them to a wide range. And we, and we do try to um, let people know that there are lots of exciting opportunities. But for young people, they want something that sounds cool and that feels cool. So AI, robotics is cool. Digital forensics is cool, cybersecurity, cyber ops. They wouldn't know what it is, but forensics, they have an idea and digital forensics. So they get excited about those opportunities. But what we try and tell them is, you know, uh, are you curious? Do you like finding things out? Um, do you like working with others? Then you can have uh, any number of career pathways in cyber-related areas. So I think that as we're seeing this massive um, uh, attention now on artificial intelligence. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of young people wanting to come into artificial intelligence. And we're actually seeing maybe a little drop off in our computer science numbers because obviously uh, 
We used to teach AI as part of computer science, and now it's breaking out um, into a, uh, a degree of its own. But um, the opportunity for young people who are using technology every day and aren't even thinking about it, um, they're fearless in a way. And those are the kinds of people we need engaged, people who are willing to try things, uh, willing to be creative, but willing to recognize that there can be concerns that come with abuse of these technologies or you know, unrestricted use in certain ways. Uh, we try to get to both sides of the picture. So you've made it clear there's no quick fix to this problem. But if we don't solve it in the longer term, what are the implications economically, politically, for national security? Well, um, the role um, that um, the United States in particular, and I would say Western democracies as well, have had in um, leading the world in technological development and economic development, jobs, quality of life, all of that begins to slip if, in fact, we lose that opportunity, if we, we lose the idea that um, the, the values that Western democracies were built on um, are going to be reflected in the technologies that are developed. Uh, we know that. There's a great book written by uh, Larry Lessig many years ago called The Code, um, and once you uh, encode things, then that begins to reflect uh, those values. So I think that otherwise we would see a lot of the advances that this country has made and, and, and Western countries have made um, begin to slip. Um, I don't think we want to see the dominance of Western countries to, uh, to push down other countries. We just want to ensure that when technologies are made available, they allow our people to uh, live full lives, live free, um, be able to express themselves fully um, and take full advantage of the opportunities that are available to them, uh, rather than seeing um, technology be used to control populations, which we've seen in China and I'm sure to some extent in, in Soviet, former Soviet Union, etc. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jose Marie Griffiths, president of Dakota State University. It was great to have you with us on NatSec Tech to share your insights. Thank you, Jean. NatSec Tech is brought to you by the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Mazur. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you'll do so again. <music>